Welcome back, everybody. I am wrapping up, uh, you know, the week day because we're also having interviews in the weekend. So I'm wrapping up the week days by speaking to the wonderful uh, Brian Curlander, who uh, you know from a you know a number of shows, including Cobra Kai. You know, we're kind of on our Cobra Kai binge right now, so a lot of the actors are kind enough to join us. So uh, you remember, uh, you know, Brian playing PJ in season one. We're hoping he comes back in season four. We're starting kind of a pre-show uh, chat about what uh, what PJ can do. So welcome to the program, Brian. I guess let's let's pick it up right there. Well, thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so yeah, what what do we think? You know, is is there a way for uh, for PJ to be a part of uh, season four? I know that uh, just just to be clear, you do not know whether you're in season four or not. But what would you like to see if PJ were to come back? <laughs> well. Um, I think it'd be great if they brought uh, PJ back and where there's a will, there's a way. And if enough people out there uh, uh, send uh, their, their, their letters and notes to Netflix and the producers, uh, perhaps they, they will want to, to bring them back. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, PJ has got some, he's got some hidden secrets there, I think, <laughs> that they might be interested in finding out about. Yeah. Um, so let's let's kind of go back to the beginning of, of Cobra Kai. It was shot in Atlanta. You're an Atlanta, uh, you know, local, and we're going to dive uh, into all of the you know Atlanta happenings and how Atlanta mm -hmm. kind of became the the hotbed that it is uh, now. But uh, it was a YouTube Red series, so not a lot of people kind of knew about it. It was the YouTube. Okay, all right, fine on YouTube. How did that audition come about? Did you self submit? Like I know Susan self submitted. Or did you go through your agent? Uh, what was that process? Went through my agent um, uh, and um, uh, uh, went in to the casting director. It was I remember it was, it was dark that night, and I had to drive out to a studio and went up mm. to their offices. And um, I actually saw the actor coming out of his audition for this role. I looked at him, and I said, um, I feel sorry for that guy because this role is mine. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, that's the attitude I think you have to have. It's such a this business, and particularly now, um, and, and you know, during COVID, uh, yeah. where so many actors from all over the world now are self-taping. Uh, Atlanta used to be a one of the few predominantly self-taped markets. Now, New York and LA and all over the world, casting directors are catching on. It's much easier for them. So, uh, but at that time, when you would walk in, you'd have to psych yourself up and go, "I feel sorry for everybody else because this is my role." Um, but I had a great time. I knew the casting director, uh, wonderful casting director uh, uh, here in town at the time. Uh, and um, and yeah, that was it. Went in, did my job. And, and that's all you can do, you know, as an actor. Um, I look at the auditions as the job. My people who I coach, you know, they say, well, you know, I haven't booked a gig. And I said, I really want to play this part. And my, my response to them is, well, you are. This is your shot. You are playing the part. So play the part give it whatever you think that you can give to it and then you got to let the the chips fall where they may so that it's was true. the process yeah so and uh was there you know callbacks or uh you landed it after uh kind of that i landed it right after that i think they just they knew i you know the description of the character was not particularly flattering it was like a semi-attractive man <laughs> it's like if he could be attractive in the right light i think is what they were looking at so that was yeah. uh, I was like, well, okay. Well, at least my wife thinks I'm attractive. 
Yeah, well, okay. I, I was about to mention that this is the type of role that I would be uh, happy to uh, to kind of submit for myself. But then I'm not sure if I would uh, if I would agree with the last thing you said. I'm not sure if my wife finds me attractive. So <laughs> oh, I'm sure she does. I I I think she does. I've been married for what 20, 21 years uh, or so. So uh, if she doesn't, yeah, twenty two. Twenty two for you? Yeah. Very good. Congratulations. That's so. Uh, yeah, uh, being married for that uh, long again, you know, people who are much older than us are looking at us saying, yeah, whatever, you know, we get get to forty and then we'll talk. But uh, our business twenty two years, like that, that's that's you know, you're like fifty. It's like dog years in our yeah. business. It's not easy. The one thing that I've never had to deal with, and you've you've actually had a career, whereas I've had you know a few things that I've done here and there. But I knew fairly uh, early on that. You know what? I never have to have a conversation with my wife about, you know, uh, sex scenes uh, or, you know, uh, intimate scenes or even kissing because those are not the types of roles that I would be going out for. So it just I didn't need to worry about that conversation. Did you ever have to have uh, yeah. kind of those conversations? Funny that you mentioned that one time um, I had an arc on a show and um, and my wife and I were watching and I neglected to tell her that one of the scenes was uh, me in a bathrobe surrounded by two um, sex workers and uh, in a hotel room doing uh, some uh, naughty things <laughs> and uh, and so as the as the show started uh, we were sitting on the couch and uh, she's like oh this is great I can't wait to see you and I, I leaned over to her and I said oh by the way yeah. There might be a scene in this with me and two other women. She was like, excuse me? Give me that like little dog tilt. Hmm? And uh, yeah, but it was, it, they actually did a very nice job of it. And it was, uh, it, it was not as uh, risque as I, I had imagined in my mind. Thank God. Yeah. yeah thank goodness. This this business is really is really interesting. Again, for the people who are watching, you're like, what are you guys talking about? These are the types of conversations that we have to worry about. Yeah, right. Uh, well, my, thank goodness, my my wife is not in the industry. Thank goodness, and she, um, but she has a great uh, appreciation for the arts. And um, you know, I have a I have a, a a rider in my contract. It's called the carry clause, and um, it it prescribes the amount of clothing I am allowed to take off yep. and then you yep. can see which is pretty much a sweater and that's it okay yeah that works that works very well um yeah it's going going back to cobra kai because you and i can get on this tangent for for the next half an hour um what uh you know again you were in season one season one people really didn't even know kind of about the show i didn't know that the show existed until it went on netflix so yeah it you know um, YouTube really wanted to get into that space. Um, they I, they just didn't have the content to anchor it. And uh, as great a show as Cobra Kai is, mm -hmm. it wasn't the right anchor for YouTube at the time. Plus, YouTube's brand I think was working against it in terms yeah. of delivering that kind of content. When people want to go to YouTube, they want to see clips like this. Um, not necessarily entire shows, uh, mm -hmm. unless they're downloaded, you know, by other folks. Um, mm -hmm. So um, once it went to Netflix, I, I was shocked 
um, because all of a sudden my phone starts ringing off the hook and I'm getting all sorts of messages. Oh, I just saw you on Cobra Kai and it became this phenomena. And I think because of COVID that also mm. really yeah. worked, uh, you know, in, in a strange way in its favor to help it become the phenomena that it is. Absolutely. <clears throat> because again, there was no, no new content and thankfully, you know, season three was shot before and uh, you can get it out and people, you know, are, uh, essentially, that's how I started my uh, my new year, right? It's uh, it came out, and I watched the whole thing. <laughs> I watched season three after it came out. So, well, this, yeah, you know, you... I think Machio had a lot to do with that. Like, I think um, Billy Zabka and Ralph Machio were were very adamant that um, uh, after they had shot the first two seasons, that season three, um, yeah. Apple would allow them to just hold it down because Netflix was one of the places that they originally went to um, and pitched the show. There were a number of different um, platforms that they pitched it to, um, but um, Netflix and Netflix was an early. You know, they were on board, uh, which is why they took it right after YouTube let it go. Yeah, and thank God. I mean, there are so many great shows. I'm, I'm I'm dealing with one of those shows, which is a truly, truly great show. Warrior. It was on Cinemax, and then all of the things that happened with Cinemax, and the you know, it was supposed to be on there for six seasons or longer, and then after two seasons, it stopped. But now it's on HBO Max. Hopefully, it gets a you know wider audience, and then HBO picks it up because like these types of shows, you know, Cobra Kai, Warrior, they need to be continued. Yeah, that that universe is way too rich uh, in order for it to stop only after two seasons. So uh, I'm I'm very happy that Netflix picked it up, uh, and you know, hopefully, uh, same sort of uh, success uh, goes with uh, with Warrior as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your phone ringing off the hook, did that lead, again, you know, from working actors perspective, because this is what kind of the show uh, does is we speak to, you know, mostly working actors as opposed to, you know, stars uh, that, you know, don't need to kind of uh, go and audition. Uh, did things change for the better for you after the Cobra Kai, uh, even though, again, it's it's a smaller role? Yeah, it, um, it's interesting. I, so I, um, uh, as an actor, I, I look at my profession as a large pie with lots of slices. You know, there, I don't think um, there, there are some actors who are fortunate enough to spend most of their time in the actor slice uh, yeah. where they make most of their income on that. I teach, I do a lot of theater, um, I write. So I'd like to be creative in, in uh, a number of ways. So I spent a lot of my year working in theater uh, mm -hmm. in great professional companies uh, here in Atlanta. As a young actor, I traveled around the country working at you know, regional theaters and off-Broadway and Lincoln Center and things like that. And mm -hmm. um, so that keeps me very enriched and busy. Um, and then uh, the, the wonderful thing about Cobra Kai, things like Cobra Kai or House of Cards, people see you on it. it it helps to add to your bona fides where other people say, oh, he worked on this show. He must be worth his salt. You know, working with actors like Billy Zapka or Robin Wright, they say, oh, he, they can hold their own. And that's a that's a plus, certainly. That That is true. Um, because, again, it's like uh, uh, a conversation I had with uh, with some other actors, it's, you go through kind of your arc and then you hit uh, certain points in your career where people know you and then you kind of uh, 
go away in a way from the public uh, eye and then all of a sudden you're on the show and it's a co-star or a guest star appearance and oh my god you're 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 popular again it's it's that interesting thing that happens in our business even though you're still just as talented you're still just as qualified but it's that thing that you know allows some people to open doors that were not uh, open before that's true it's absolutely true it's the fickle nature of our business and you yeah. have to understand that it's cyclical in that way and and you have to maintain um, uh, a creative expression in a number of different ways. Perfect, and that's that's exactly what I wanted to to transfer to. And you said it because a lot of uh, you know actors that are specifically just focused on the acting world, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, it's very discouraging, and a lot of times you you're going through lean periods where you're not booking. And if you're booking, it may be a co-star role. Well, a co-star role is not going to feed you uh, and you know keep the lights on. Um, and unless you are, I, I kind of, I phrased it this way, you know, Michael Kostrup liked it, so I'm going with it. So my phrase is you're either creative or you're destructive and destructive, not necessarily in the way of, you know, committing suicide type of destructive, right. but destructive is the opposite of creative. Uh, creativity is something that allows us to really, uh, feel great about ourselves is to soar is to kind of have that energy you know, flowing, whereas destructive is the other end of that spectrum of you're feeling down or things are not happening. You start evaluating and you're not in that proper headspace. So the fact that you're doing theater, the fact that you're doing writing, the fact that you're doing teaching, all of these things, I'm hoping, and it sounds like it, these are the things that are allowing you to continue being in that creative space and energized. So opportunities come and go, but you're still in that mode and it should be hopefully a better way to live well i i like what you said um i i phrase it like this you are either an occupant or an ar architect and True. um and so as an architect you get to build the space you get to create um what you are doing the occupant is reliant on somebody else creating the space for them to work within and that can be a very lonely and soul-crushing existence. Uh, we learned during uh, COVID that being an occupant, in one, even in one's own home, uh, mm -hmm. is, can be uh, difficult. Uh, but uh, so I've tried to, and it's, it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, to be uh, the architect of the things that I do. And, um, and that's been very, very helpful. Um, uh, I'm, this, uh, this semester at Emory University, I'm uh, guest lecturing a number of times, uh, teaching nice. uh, Hamlet, um, because my background is in classical theater. And mm -hmm. so I've done uh, a great deal of Shakespeare over the course of my 30 years. And so I get to work with amazing students who are brilliant, a lot smarter than I am. And we get to talk about a subject that I'm incredibly passionate about. And that's wonderful. Um, again, kind of going from a theater environment into on screen, uh, because you've uh, you have the classical background, do you have a preference? Uh, and actually, the the question um, came uh, came to me after many interviews. But a question that kind of uh, makes sense in a scenario of you're offered a you know a recurring guest star on a nice show, or you're offered a tour uh, in a, in a theater uh, company. Which one do you take? Because you can only choose one. Okay. Well, first of all. Um, it would be harder if somebody offered me a Broadway show versus a tour. Tour is easy. No, <laughs> I don't want, I'm too old. I don't want to do a tour. Um, uh, but 
but if you were to offer me a, a great show with a great cast yeah. on Broadway um, versus uh, just a standard recurring on mm -hmm. uh, TV series, although the recurring would be much, much more lucrative, um, yeah. the for me, the, the, the theater experience is just the most fulfilling experience that I can have creatively. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, there are there are specific differences, and uh, I, you know, people talk about the acting aspect of it, right? Of theater, you know, on stage, on screen, and you know, you, you're much smaller framing, right? A lot happens in the eyes in terms of on screen versus uh, in the theater. What they're not talking about is the way that things are actually shot and things are rehearsed, and on screen you have you know, for, for a co-star or a guest star, you basically have no rehearsal, maybe some rehearsal. Uh, you know, things are shot out of sequence. Uh, so in the theater, you have a lot more time to really understand, to dive in, to rehearse, to get uh, into the flow of things. And it's done sequentially. It's done in a linear progression. So it's a much different feel. Uh, so I... I from my perspective, even though I love, you know, my answer would be uh, on screen because I love uh, kind of everything that's uh, that's screen related. But I appreciate the process of stage a lot more because I want to rehearse, I want to get in, I want to try different things, I want to get kind of uh, that feel that you don't usually get, especially with smaller roles uh, that you know I come up with. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love the process. They're yeah. very very different. Um, and um, I love the distinction between them. I love the internalization of uh, character and really allowing, um, you know, when I when I talk to young actors or even very experienced actors that I work with, um, we talk about breathing and we talk about the idea of where inspiration comes from. You know, what inspires you? What gets you motivated? What What gets you really present? And what I assert is that just breathing, just the, the the act of breathing in inspires us. It helps us think clearly. And on camera, you'll I notice when I'm on a set, I notice the people who are holding their breath through the entire shot. And it's fascinating how their body tenses up, how their how their whole mechanism re responds to it. Whereas when you just start to when you just relax into it and allow yourself to breathe, but allow the essence of the the the, the essence of the energy of the character. So it's mm -hmm. it's not quite paradoxical because you got to be relaxed but you also have to have this energy coming through you and that comes through your eyes and allows the audience through the lens to see how you're thinking but that doesn't happen if you're not breathing and so on stage you get to breathe because you're speaking so much louder that it requires you to breathe and you can give off a little more of that frenetic energy in different ways whereas on camera you can't and so I, yeah. I love playing in inside the distinction between the the two mediums because um, they require you know it's like being an athlete you know you're either a long distance runner or you're a sprinter and and in our profession we get to be both sometimes yeah it's and again it's 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 energizing right to uh, to do one and go back in the other it's it's a different muscle uh, that you get to play with. Absolutely. I, the, the breathing part is fascinating to me because, again, a lot of the young actors do this. I did this as well. 
it's you're so focused and you're so kind of in your head okay i need to remember my lines i need to hit my mark i need to make sure that i don't look at the camera i like so many things are happening on set that you forget to breathe and the whole point of being present and the whole point of being grounded and the whole point of people who are watching you thinking that this is real life in a way in real life we're breathing right now you know my energy is higher i'm still breathing as i'm talking there is no way for me to be believable if it's just it's, it's <laughs> right like the thing is like we we as actors are so into the process that we forget to be real <laughs> and breathing is a huge part of that absolutely yeah right it was like you keep talking about you know the karate yeah. kid you know didn't miyagi say you know breathe in breathe out no breathe no life you know that's yeah. a that's a total cobra kai thing you know you gotta totally. breathe and um and so that's that's like just a that's such a fundamental thing that we we don't think about and you can't think if you're thinking about breathing you're not in the scene so yeah. it has to become something of a um of a preparation so that you just allow yourself to relax into the scene have confidence what i love about you know going on stage sometimes when you're in a long run of a show is i will actively try to forget my lines before i walk on stage I don't want to know what I'm I like. I don't want to I don't want to think about a word that I'm saying before I walk on because it forces me to listen. And I learned that as a young actor in New York, I was going on uh, doing a show off Broadway. And uh, I was thrown into the show um, eight days before they opened. It was a Shakespeare play called Cymbeline. It was you know reviewed by The New York Times, The Post, and all the, the Wall Street Journal. So all the major media were. Were coming to review it. And I uh, had to get off book in five days and only have basically three days to really work the play without having a book in my hand and do fights and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And I was so dependent on my cast, who I trusted implicitly because they were Tony Award winners and amazing actors. And um, I was so, and I was playing the villain in the show, this character of Yakimo. And I relied on them and I listened to them so actively, more so than I'd ever in my career. And it taught me that important lesson of, if you listen, the lines will be there. Yes. But the mm -hmm. moment you stop listening and go into your head is the moment that all the distractions start rushing in. Yeah, it's true. Um, I, I learned a lot, again, you know, my focus is on screen, but I learned a lot and I became a far better actor when I did training for theater specifically, because the moment before the, uh, you know, Meisner of being present and being kind of focused on the other person, that completely got me out of my head. And I was just, I started being freer and then really understood what it meant to be as opposed to, to act or to, uh, you know, uh, try to pretend like I'm in a scene. So that that whole focus and uh, getting grounded became a lot simpler. So I, I recommend that to everybody, regardless of kind of what they're doing and what their focus is. Well, you know, I started off as a college athlete. I was not in, into the arts. And uh, so I wanted to root myself in some fundamentals because as an athlete, I had these fundamental skills that I had trained uh, for and that had given me a great deal of su success in my sport. And um, and so when I transitioned into the arts, I took a lot of that discipline and focus of foundation building. And I thought, 
Well, for me, I, I want to start with classical theater because um, all of the artists that I truly admired had done, you know, Shakespeare and Shaw and Moliere and you know Chekhov, and so I wanted to emulate those uh, actors and artists. I think it was I saw Alan Rickman on Broadway when I was really young doing Les Liaisons Dangerous, and uh, it astounded me. Um, now here I was this you know 17 inch neck wrestler. You know, and I walk into the theater with uh, my folks and I walked out going, oh, my gosh, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. That was astounding. So that's that's yeah, that's that's amazing. And you're right. Uh, Mark, Mark Rylance is uh, is probably one of my all time favorite actors. Really. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 all theater before, you know, getting on screen and kind of uh, doing the things that I've seen him do. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, going into your wrestling uh, background a little bit. So, um, when did you start wrestling? And you know, I know at 17 you decided you you want to be an actor, but how did that kind of uh, transition? Um, I was a, a young kid. I had a, um, a teacher who took me under his wing and mm-hmm. uh, saw that I had uh, a potential as a wrestler. Um, uh, and he also saw that wrestling would be a, uh, a a good place for me to be successful. And by being successful there, it would allow me to be successful in other areas of my life. Now, I didn't realize that at the time he was a great teacher and um, and someone who I'm still in contact with to this day. Um, nice. And uh, and so uh, when I got to high school, I I had gone away to uh, boarding school for a couple of years. And I came back and the same um, a teacher had said, you know, he, he had expected me to go out for the wrestling team. But I had been diving a lot over the course of the, the, the subsequent years that I was away. And I really liked diving. And the guys on the swim team said, oh, no, I've seen him dive. He's going to be on the diving team. And a bunch of guys, no, no, he's going to be on the wrestling team. And I was playing um, football at the time. And the wrestling, the varsity wrestling coach was the freshman football coach. and he grabbed me by my face mask after practice one day, and he said, um, I heard you're gonna dive. And I said, well, I was thinking about it. And he said, well, you can either ride the bench or you can, uh, or you can die. You can dive and ride the bench or you can uh, play football. And I was like, I wanna play football. So uh, I ended up saying to the swim team, thank you, uh, no thank you. And it was certainly the best decision I ever made. Okay. So then uh, wrestling, was it uh, Greco-Roman or freestyle? What kind of wrestling? Um, well, I, I competed for the U.S. in the world championships in Greco-Roman. Um, this was the uh, aspiring Olympians. Um, and uh, I wrestled uh, on that team were a couple of gold medalists and uh, pretty impressive uh, guys. And I got to go to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and compete in the world championships and place in the top 10 in the world. And that was just mm-hmm. what an experience that was. It was just Tremendous, and that was in Greco-Roman, which is all upper body, and uh, and uh, something that the United States they were trying to build their team at the time. So um, I had a college coach who was on the uh, '84 Olympic team in Los Angeles as a Greco wrestler. So he helped bring me along. I actually started wrestling Greco uh, two months before I made the U.S. team. So. I actually uh, was working out with some of the best guys in the country, and they were just throwing me all over the place until I learned 
how not to get thrown all over the place. So you competed against the Russians as well? I did. I competed against Russians and uh, Ukrainians and uh, Bulgarians and Egyptians and Japanese. And, yeah. and it was great. Wow. I mean, they were, and, and what I loved about it was um, where they set us up at the Olympic Training Center became uh, my room uh, on campus became like an international training hub. And so we, we were all given, you're given pins and all sorts of uniforms and things. And we were trading, you know, Russian nesting dolls and, and big, you know, fur caps for, you know, Lee jeans. You have blue jeans. We'll give you, I give you the Russian hats for blue jeans. Yeah. And again, we, we need to, we need to specify the timeline so people understand. What year was that? That was, uh, oh, that was uh, 1987, I think. Yeah. Was that so, so a little different period of time? This is the Soviet Union. You know, they, yeah. they would come out and they would go, uh, uh, CCCP change USA. They called us USA. USA was USA. Uh, CCCP USA change. Yeah. And so that's because, how we would communicate with each other and, and trade stuff and create detente. Yeah, because at that time, again, the, the Soviet Union had not broken up uh, yet. Uh, 87, it was still kind of behind the Iron Curtain. The uh, you know, the athletes were really almost the only ones that had a chance to go outside. And the, you know, there's no professionalism there, at least, uh, you know, not, not at that time. So they were getting paid very little money. And in order to get anything back to their, to their country, that's what they had to, uh, they had to do. You know, I came in 89 when things started opening up a little bit. Uh, but yeah, 87, 88 was still that time where, uh, you know, unless you change or exchange something, you would have no way of getting it otherwise. Well, it was interesting because they actually, when the Russian team came to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, they moved the U.S. team off the campus to a nearby college. So we were having to commute back and forth from the college. And I, and I was I talked to our you know our team managers and like why are they doing this we know this is an opportunity for all of us to connect together and you know create commonality I don't understand why we're not why you're not supporting our our, our coming together and ultimately they moved us back on campus and and it was amazing it was a great experience and we all got along tremendously well. Yeah, it's because, you know, KGB needs to be around and they need to make sure that people don't defect and, you know, all sorts of things. So they, they needed a ring of protection around uh, around people at that time. They didn't want a Robin Williams, I defect. Yes. Nope. No, they did no not. On the Hudson there. Yeah. God, Robin. I love Robin. Um, <clears throat> yeah, very, very interesting time. So then, you know, after after all of that, you decided that, no, no, no I'm, I want to be an actor instead. Well, I, I, so as it turned out, um, I went through basic training for the military um, because I thought I, it was a great way to serve my country and also um, continue wrestling because a lot of the guys I competed against were in the military. They were Marines, they were in the Air Force, they were in the Navy, and, and they were allowed to compete. And that was part of their job. And they thought, yeah, you could totally do this. And I thought, this is great. I'll get paid to wrestle. And I'll serve my country and they'll be fantastic. And I went through basic training and I decided, you know what, this isn't, it wasn't the right fit for me. Um, so when everybody was signing their contracts, um, I had a really bad case of poison ivy from bivouacking through the Kentucky uh, countryside. And um, 
uh, I got treated and then walked onto the bus and headed home without signing my contract. It was not a, there was nothing, you know, bad about it. It was just, I chose not to, but I uh, gained a great deal from that experience and, uh, and certainly encourage anybody uh, who's interested, they should you know, look into it because I, I, th I found it to be a, a, a wonderful experience for myself. Yeah. Um, so that then, so I decided at that time that I was going to retire from wrestling, and I yeah. always wanted to act. And I had some people who had asked me to do some things prior to that, um, musicals and other theater things in college, and I thought that might be a gas. And uh, so I just did it on a whim and really uh, found that I loved it and then got to New York and saw Alan Rickman, and I just uh, said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. How interesting life <clears throat> life works in such such interesting ways that you never know where you're going and then something turns up and you're going one way. Um, yeah, it's, in in my case, I was a part of the junior Ukrainian national volleyball team, and then they all continued on. And uh, the coach took my dad aside and said, "Okay, well, your son can go with us because he's a Jew." And my dad said, "Okay." And that was the end of my volleyball career. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's like these these things are you know changing our lives in 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 every way possible, and it's just a one little thing, right? Your your coach took you aside uh, and said you can either dive or you can be on the football team. That led you yeah. to get into you know world championships. Uh, yeah. You know, like all of these moments in life that change who we are and where we're going forever. I find that fascinating. I know you can't write this stuff, could you? No one would believe it. It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah, I went from volleyball to uh, to ballroom dancing, and you know uh, that you know didn't go anywhere. Then I went to the United States. I wanted to be an actor. Then my parents said, "No, we we came here with you know no money in our pockets, so you don't have to be in Afghanistan and you don't have to be drafted and killed there, and so you can get a better life." So like me wanting to be an actor turned out not to be a possibility, even though I was growing up wanting to be an actor and that's all i wanted to do and i had my whole plan but it came to america that changed so like all of these things and for you you got uh, you get into acting after wrestling um i want to ask you about house of cards uh, i don't want to leave that kind of uh, hanging before we get to kind of the whole atlanta and you know atlanta growing experience uh what was your experience like on uh, on house of cards i was great um, i stood next to robin wright for six and a half hours and 104 degree heat. <laughs> you know what? I I would have braved it. Oh, uh, you know, I listen. You know, I I was willing to brave the heat stroke to yeah. uh, just just be in proximity of her brilliance. I mean, she's incredibly mm -hmm. professional. She was a lovely human being, and um, and they worked very very hard on that set. Um, she had done a lot of directing by that point um, uh, on the show, and so this was the first day of shooting of season five, and we were outside Baltimore, Maryland, shooting at this kind of bombed out gas station. And the moment she walked out on set, the entire place lit up and the the crew especially, and you can tell um, what an actor is like by the way the crew treats them or the way that they treat the crew. Yeah. They, she was beloved and uh, truly, I was like, okay, so this is gonna be a wonderful day um, of watching and uh, working alongside you know, one of the greats. 
And it was, it was really, besides the 104 degree heat and the constant hydration and the little fans that they were giving us, because I, I don't sweat, I create a weather system. I mean, like it's, it's torrential. And so everybody was being brought into this little tent with air conditioning, that broke down. Then they moved us, you had to walk about, you know, a quarter mile to this building that had air conditioning. But by the time you walked back and forth, you were soaking. So yeah. I commandeered the SUV that you know that they were using to drive her up, you know, the vice president at the time. So I just sat in the SUV, turned the car on, got the AC going, listened to the radio, and that was my little uh, my little honey wagon on set for a while until everybody realized what I was doing. And then everybody started piling in the car. Yeah, I I remember talking to one of the guys who was uh, who was one of the stormtroopers um, uh, in I don't know I think the 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 last the I think nine uh, of of Star Wars and they were shooting in uh, in Saudi Arabia or somewhere in there and it was ridiculously hot and they couldn't take off all of the uh, all of the outfits so basically they were you know during the breaks they were you know putting ice packs, you know, inside of it. And, you know, everybody was kind of helping each other out. So as as soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, okay, ice packs, ice packs, where were the ice packs? Couldn't you kind of wear them underneath somewhere? Yeah, that's where my wrestling training came in. You know, I'm used to being in plastic suits, sweating profusely and know how to hydrate. My goodness. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Let's go to Atlanta because you, you've had a chance to kind of see Atlanta and be a part of Atlanta's growth uh, in the film industry because, you know, I, I'm in the secondary market of Chicago. Chicago really had very little going on outside of theater and improv, but in terms of on screen, there was not a ton until we started getting kind of our cine space. And now we have sound stages and now we have a lot of uh, stuff that's happening. Atlanta, you know, went through that. It just went through that before and with Tyler Perry, you know, building his own studio there. So tell me about, you know, Atlanta and how you had a chance to kind of be a part of it. Well, um, I'll give you a little background. Um, So among the circuitous route that my career has taken, I was the film commissioner for the state of Alabama. Um, I, you know, worked at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. I was doing a show one day. Um, My wife was in the current governor's administration. And so we knew the governor and first lady fairly well. As a matter of fact, I went to synagogue with the first lady who was Jewish. Uh, you wouldn't think that Alabama would have a Jewish first lady, but there you go. And um, and so uh, he called me and said, would you like to be my film commissioner? Uh, and uh, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. <laughs> I have no idea what this means, but sure. Um, and it turned out to be a, a, one of those amazing experiences where I um, created legislation that uh, created incentives for the industry, lobbied it at the state house, got it passed recruited films at Cannes and Sundance. And um, so I really got a great sense of um, the economic development aspect of the film mm-hmm. industry and the jobs that it creates and the revenue that it generates for the states. So now let's mm-hmm. fast forward. Um, 2008 in Georgia, uh, who was always a great competitor of Alabama's and always just eating Alabama's lunch in terms of the film industry, um, uh, they passed an incentives package um, that is a tax credit uh, incentive without a ceiling. So the amount of money that they can credit doesn't have a ceiling, so they can bring in a lot of funds. Now, remember, in 2008, that's right at the downturn uh, of the Great Recession. 
So all of a sudden, these big box retailers are out of business and there's all this empty big box space. So the film industry is plugging along and at that time, you know, unlike a pandemic, the film industry was recession proof. Um, proven not to be pandemic proof, but but certainly recession proof. And so this tax credit goes into effect. At the time, Georgia's generating, you know, a few hundred million dollars in the industry. Um, uh, production companies come in, they take over these big boxes. Now, as a former film commissioner, I can tell you, I turned a Gafer's warehouse into the soundstage for the movie Big Fish that Tim Burton directed. So I knew how these things worked. And so they, they come in, they take over these big box, empty spaces, and they start putting productions up. So fast forward five years, they go from a few hundred million to about three billion in economic impact. Um, and, and now we're in, uh, you know, let's say we're close to 2015. And Pinewood Studios says, we're going to build our North American facility in Fayetteville, Georgia. And along with that comes a Marvel franchise. So all of the Avengers movies, a number of the Spider-Man movies, which Spider-Man 3 is um, being shot here right now, and uh, uh, that starts to pick up. So now our industry goes from three and a half billion a year to close to $10 billion a year in economic impact. Because now, all of these productions from all over the, the country and all over the world are seeing the economic benefit of shooting in Georgia and the ease of shooting in the state. Because one, you've got a, one of the busiest airports in the world uh, coming yep. through a Huntsville-Jackson airport. Um, the ease to get around and just the um, the value of as far as the dollar goes. So now production companies are getting upfront money from this tax credit. Um, so they are, they're not hemorrhaging the money that they've raised to make the film from the studios or other uh, venture capital funds. And they're able to make their movie cheaper and more efficient. And there are already some sound stages that are here, but now sound stages are going up left and right. So now there are a hundred sound stages in, in and around the Atlanta area and major league productions, you know, some of the biggest budget blockbusters of the last decade are coming out of Atlanta. So industry growing on itself exponentially. Right now, you look at what COVID is doing to Los Angeles, they've had to shut down. Yeah. Now we're about 85, 90% at capacity in Georgia right now. So we're, we're doing the most production. The difference is in Georgia, Georgia is like, um, it's like a catering hall. Um, we've got the space that we can rent out and we can do it at an economical rate. What needs to happen is content creation really needs to start coming out of the Southeast and particularly Georgia for the industry to truly grow and sustain itself. And that's the next step, I think, in the evolution of this industry. And we're starting to see that, as you mentioned, Tyler Perry, you know, he produces a ton of content out of his studio facility. It's an amazing facility. I've had the pleasure of working on it several times. And, um, you know, so that's where we are. That's basically the story of the kind of Georgia film industry in a nutshell. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then from acting perspective, hopefully it then goes to a point of you don't have to be L.A. or New York based in order to get starring roles. And then, again, that's that's where Atlanta actors can start growing in that same as Chicago actors in our uh, you know community. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you, Chicago's got some 
uh, great, great actors. I uh, have a number of friends who came out of that, uh, the Chicago uh, acting scene are still there and uh, people I you know, respect immensely. So it's a great, a great town. Yeah, that's very, very cool. Thank you for that history. That's, uh, that's amazing. So when, uh, when did you stop being the Alabama commissioner and, you know, how did you get involved in the, in the Georgia uh, side of it? Well, we, um, my, my family, my wife and children are all born in Alabama. So I've got my, my heart is in Dixie. Um, and we, uh, moved from the capital Montgomery to Birmingham for, uh, about seven years. And at this time I was, had been out of the industry for a while, but, um, when we left Montgomery and when, uh, the, uh, the democratic governor who, uh, we both worked for, um, uh, did not get reelected for a second term. Uh, we both obviously left the administration and, yeah. uh, we moved to, uh, to Birmingham and, uh, and then I was out of the business for, uh, the next, uh, eight, uh, seven and a half, eight years working in uh, marketing, public relations, and really just gaining some skills that I've been able to use since I got back into acting. And mm -hmm. that happened about 11 and a half years ago when we moved from Alabama to, uh, to Atlanta. We just happened to land uh, in Atlanta at the perfect moment for me to get back into acting. Yeah, uh, maybe it had something to do with it. Uh, you know, you saw all the things that were going on, and you was like, "Yeah, I, I want to, you know, do that again." Exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. Um, as we wrap up, because I know you and I can talk for a long time, but uh, the the YouTube uh, viewers uh, prefer for my shows to be shorter than I want them to be. So, um, as we wrap up looking at your career and looking at the many twists and turns that uh, it took, if you went back and talked to your 17-year-old self and gave one piece of advice, what would that be? That's a great question. Um, I think the advice would be you're okay. Um, you just being, you don't have to be anybody but who you are. Mm -hmm. Embrace who you are the good, bad, and the ugly, um, and then continue to be the good person you are. Um, and, uh, you know, live with your self-doubts, but even in the face of that, know that you're okay. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple advice, nothing major, just, uh, you know, take care of yourself and, and be okay with yourself. Well, simple is what's remembered. Simple stays and simple gets, uh, gets to the heart of it. So I like simple. Thanks. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, it's it's been fascinating. Uh, I I want to have you on again so we can continue with this because I know that there are a lot more nuggets that uh, that you have at your disposal that we need to know about. Um, I really appreciate it. Well, I think I, it's like I made a new friend today. I'm, you know, as a, yeah. as a as a guy who's approaching double nickels. Um, you know. You, it's hard to make new friends at 55. And it's nice when you meet people that you can have a nice conversation with and have some shared interests. Thank you. Uh, likewise, absolutely. Let's uh, let's stay in touch. I, I feel uh, absolutely the same. I'm, you know, I'm going to be 46 in a few months, so I have a little bit of uh, room until I get to uh, double nickels. But um, yeah, I, I do feel that way. It's and it's interesting. On that note, um, you know, I have an 11-year-old son. I was having this conversation with him. 
I seem to bring up my son at every one of the of the you know episodes that I have, which I think he's enjoyed. Maybe people find it annoying, but there is a point to this. Um, I, I was having a conversation about uh, you know friends and uh, you know being at eleven, you know friend groups are kind of uh, all in flux. And he was saying, look, I don't have best friend, and and he was really sad about that. And I said, well, let's let's think of it. You know, I have two best friends. One of them I met when I was 15. The other one I met when I was 33. So, um, you know, getting your friends and close friends and best friends doesn't automatically mean that you have to get them when you're five or seven years old. Mm -hmm. But that's going to happen all throughout your life. So now, you know, at, uh, at, 40, at 45 or almost 46, I have another friend. So it, it, uh, the trend continues. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. I appreciate that. This has been a joy, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And thanks to everybody for tuning in to another episode of The Love of Acting. Uh, I hope you're as fascinated uh, by this conversation as I am. And uh, please post your comments. Please uh, uh, follow uh, Brian. We'll have all of his information right below this video. Thank you. So long. Thank <laughs> you.